Welcome to the B Major Podcast with Noah Aronson. I am Noah Aronson. I'm a recording artist, composer, performer, and intentional mover. I create music and interactive experiences to activate creativity in the mind and body. This podcast is a playground for you to explore the intersection of wellness and creativity. My process involves activating the voice by dropping into the body. I developed this method to help me battle depression and anxiety, and now I'm excited to share with you how creativity can be a powerful modality to add to other wellness and healing practices you may have. I call it the Revoice Method, and all of the music you'll hear on this podcast will be a result of this creative practice. Each week, you'll hear interviews with practitioners working in the wellness and creativity space, be guided through meditations, and will be invited into my revoice method. It is my belief that we are all quote-unquote creatives, and when we can activate our creativity authentically, we can all be happier, healthier, be more joyful, we can all be major. Welcome back, B Major friends. I'm really excited about my guest today. Eric Maisel is a powerhouse in the field of creativity and has written over 50 books on the topic. Our conversation flowed from the importance of having a daily practice to different ways to combat our resistance. One of the most profound topics was about anxiety. For me, anxiety has existed in the background my whole life, and for many years, I wasn't even aware of it. I remember having a conversation with my sister a few years ago when I was on medication for depression, and I was arguing with her that I don't have anxiety, that my issue is depression. I have since learned that, for me, they were two sides of the same coin. What I loved about Eric's compassionate framing of anxiety is that he says most creative people experience anxiety, that the creative process is about making choices, and that making choices almost always provokes anxiety. For me, I found that my revoice method has actually been a profound practice in helping me make decisions quickly and moving on. It's not about perfection, it's about acceptance. I am practicing accepting what is wanting to flow through me in any given moment, expressing it, and then moving on without judgment. The creative process is inherently anxiety-producing, and since most of us want to avoid anxiety, we can find countless ways to avoid getting our work done. It's so easy to tell ourselves we're too tired or too busy that we'll get to it another time, but it's important to learn how to push through that resistance and still learn to get to work. I spent so many years wanting to write but finding a million excuses not to. I knew I loved writing and that when I was in the process, I was happy and in my flow state, yet I still avoided it. If I knew I enjoyed it, why was I resisting it? I think one reason is connected to what Eric says in how creativity is about having to make a lot of little choices. 
The blank canvas is incredibly daunting. But since I started practicing my revoice method daily, I have found that the process of turning nothing into something has gotten a lot easier, and I have learned to trust that ideas will eventually flow with ease and that I will eventually enjoy what I create. So this is an argument in support of developing a daily practice and not simply waiting for inspiration to strike to start working. If you don't currently have a daily creative practice, I gently nudge you to consider starting one. It can be small and you can start doing something for 15 minutes every day. Eric is the author of over 50 books. He says that it's not that he writes a lot every time he sits down, but that if you write every single day for 50 years, you'll probably have a lot written. It's never too late to get started on a daily practice. Again, you can start small and set reasonable goals. I promise you'll be surprised at how much you could churn out in a week, a month, a year. Some days you'll write for only 15 minutes, and other days you'll get so into your flow that you'll choose to keep going. But I promise you that it'll be one of your favorite parts of your day, and that you'll likely feel quite proud of yourself afterwards. I like to do my creative writing in the morning, and I save the work stuff, like meetings and editing, for later in the day. I find that my mind is most alert and clear first thing in the morning, but you might find that evening times work better for you. Whatever works for you, consider setting some time aside every day. Maybe set a goal of 21 days in a row at first. Studies have shown that if we do a task every day for 21 days in a row, that it more easily becomes a habit. I have used this trick to adopt lots of new habits like journaling, meditation, early morning wake-ups, tai chi, intermittent fasting, and a lot of other practices that I now do regularly. I knew I was interested in trying to incorporate them more into my life, and I knew that if I didn't set a reasonable goal, that I would just start and then eventually give them up. So the 21 days trick really worked for me, and I hope that it works for you too. If you do start a daily practice after hearing this podcast, I'd love to hear about your experience. Drop me a note on Instagram or email me at info at to share your journey. For today's Revoice experience, I invited my friend Happy Hoffman to come co-create with me. We listened in to find a tempo and started creating music together. Here's a snippet from that experience of impromptu co-creativity.
Thank you to Happy for bringing her creativity and being open to exploring and playing together. Now let's dive into my interview with Eric Maisel as we discuss the ups and downs of the creative process. I want to set an intention for us that you know this this time together, this thirty or forty-five minutes, is um, 
is just as creative and dynamic as any of our creative practices would be if we were entering into writing or entering into singing, uh, that we can do that, we can channel that even in a, in a conversation and interview uh, in this way. So I'm very much looking forward. Good high bar intention. <laughs> That's right. I am speaking today with author, speaker, and creativity coach, Eric Maisel. Eric is the author of over 50 books. I'll just name a few of them here for our listeners. Some of them are called The Power of Daily Practice, Lighting the Way, Unleashing the Artist Within, Inside Creative Coaching and the Creativity Workbook for Coaches and Creatives. There are so many books in your uh, catalog. It is um, it is such an honor to be able to speak with you uh, over Zoom today uh, and to have you here uh, on this podcast. Great to be with you. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, welcome. Uh, so over 50 books. Do you know the exact number at this point or have you just kind of lost count? Uh, I have actually lost count. I mean, I could figure it out, but I'm too busy to stop and count. Right. So. You're, you're too busy working for on another book. So. And that's the uh, proof of the pudding about daily practices. I don't spend that much time writing, but I do write every single day for 50 years. So you end up with a lot of books. That is uh, exactly where I'm at right now with my creative practice. There's, I, I devote an hour, no matter what, to, to some sort of writing you know, every day. Not, not all of it gets released, not all of it gets put out into the world, but it's just part of the creative process. Let me piggyback on what you just said, because I work with so many clients who um, journal and do morning pages and what have you, and they consider that that they've written on that day. Mm. But I have to remind them that their book is not going to get done if they're calling their journaling. Yeah, right. right. So just to put that out there, I know an awful lot of folks who don't have their book done or books done because their good words are going into their journaling or morning pages. That's a great, um, you're using the word morning pages, which I believe is a reference to the artist way with Julia, Julia right. Cameron's work. Correct, a lot, of, a lot of people have been following morning pages since that book came out in about 1995. Just as an aside, my first book with Jeremy Tarcher and her first book with Jeremy Tarcher came out the same season in either uh, 1994, 1995. So she and I have been on this uh, parallel course for whatever that is. Uh, that's 30, beautiful. Years. There was something <laughs> in the um, in the ether that was wanting to be communicated, and it was just looking for the right channels to to be communicated. And exactly so right. um, that's that's so wonderful. I um, yes, I've been doing morning pages for many years, and I agree that morning pages is, is, is the entry point, but it's not the actual creative process. It's just helping to, I think the phrase that she uses is um, mental floss, right? It's just to kind of un, unstick the, the uh, yeah. gunk in our brain, but that's not the actual creative process. Well, I, I suggest to clients and to, to readers that their writing daily practice ought to be first thing each day for a variety of reasons. One, of course, if you write every day, you get a lot done, but also if it's first thing then you get to make use of your sleep thinking, which is a phenomenon most people don't understand. Everybody knows about dreaming. We dream in REM sleep, we think in non-REM sleep, and we can do a lot of our creative work while asleep if we make use of what our brain's willing to do. But it only works if we turn to the work first thing, otherwise all that good sleep thinking gets evaporated or dissipates as soon as the new day starts. So 
I do try to invite folks to move their morning pages or their journaling to another part of the day. I'm obviously not saying that's unimportant work. Just shift it to another part of the day so that you can use your first thing sleeping brain stuff uh, for your real writing, so to speak. I, I love that. I'm going to start giving that a shot because I've been starting with, um, with journaling and things um, of that nature. Um, but you're right. It's, uh, you know, I, there are aspects of our dream state that kind of stay with us throughout the course of the day. And, uh, and yeah, let me, I, I always, I do a lot of interrupting and I want to interrupt and, and say has not, not leave the dream word out of it because it's very different. This is thinking. If you wake a person up in REM sleep, she'll be dreaming. If you wake a person up in non-REM sleep, she'll be writing poetry or solving math puzzles or whatever her metier is. So these are very different. We, we've been focused on dreams since 1899 when Freud wrote the interpretation of dreams. We've, we've overthought dreams and we really have not looked at how we think while we sleep enough. There was a big study done in 2004 by German researchers who did finally wake people up in non-REM sleep rather than REM sleep and discovered the extent to which folks were thinking. Wow. So just, I just want us to be careful about language. We're not talking thank about- Thank you so much. Thank you for that correction. And thank you for um, helping to, to pinpoint exactly the differences there. I think that's really, yep. really helpful for me. And I'm, I'm sure for our listeners as well, because you're right, so much focus goes into the actual dreaming part. And, and, yep. what, and what, I, what I hear you implying is that even the research over the last hundred years has been so focused on the REM part. But what you're saying is that there's not enough research yet on the, the non-REM. That's right. And, and dreams, dreams always were a little sexy, a little spiritual, a little this, a little that. They were fun to think about and write about, but uh, we missed a huge thing that was going on with our sleeping brain. Wow. And it's super easy to make use of our sleeping brain by going to bed with what I call a sleep thinking prompt. It's really just a wonder or a question like, what does Mary want to say to John in chapter three? That kind of wonder. I wonder what Mary would like to say to John in chapter three. Your brain will work on that. And then if you turn to your writing first thing, you can just take dictation. Your brain will have already given you the conversation. I love that. So people are losing an hour or two of creative, free creative time, free in the freest, free in the most important sense of free. It's already happening and there's no cost. They're, they're missing that opportunity by journaling or doing Tai Chi or walking the dog or doing anything they do first thing rather than turning to their book. That is exactly my practice actually, is I get up and I journal and I do Tai Chi. So you've definitely pinpointed what my days look like when I start. Um, yeah. And I am going to... I, I know you. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, it's, uh, and it, it's beautiful. It's, 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 it's helpful for me, but at the same time, it's like, I could just jump out of bed and start creating music. I could just start writing yep. music. And, yep. and like that I've never tried before. That, I can't. I can't wait to try that tomorrow morning. That's that's great. That, that works the same way. I find that musicians get a little blocked because they're not sure about making noise at six in the morning. <laughs> right. They talk themselves out of doing it. So it, music is a little trickier, but it's the same idea. And I didn't mention the third reason why morning work is so important. The first one is you get a lot done. The second is sleep thinking. The third is by getting to some real work first thing we have the experience of having made some meaning on that day and the rest of the day can be half meaningless and we won't get depressed. 
it's important to do real and important things first thing is kind of an existential despair inoculation for the day because we know we've gotten to something real on that day. And if we have to do a lot of drudgery or chores or responsibilities or errands or what have you, still the day doesn't feel as bleak or blank as if we hadn't worked on our real stuff first thing. You are, are speaking my language right now, sir. It's, uh, it is uh, really, I mean, I, when I discovered early morning wake up, I mean, I'm an, I, I didn't realize I was an early morning person. And so I would sleep late and go to sleep late for, for many, many years of my life. Yeah. And when I shifted my schedule back to go to bed earlier and wake up earlier, I, I feel like I'm cheating at life. I feel like, oh my gosh, <laughs> the, the, how did I not know about these amazing hours? Yeah. And those people who say I'm not a morning person, I, I always respond with, that's really not a thought that serves you to, 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 to announce that kind of self-identity piece it's much better to be open to the possibility that a change there, a change in habit might really serve you. Hmm. So people come up with all sorts of reasons, many of them having many grains of truth in them. We sort of switch subjects here, but the way I talk to people about their mind is that they want to think thoughts that serve them. And that's different from thinking true thoughts or false thoughts. People think if they think a true thought, they have to countenance it because it's true. They have to what? Sorry, they have, they have to, to what? They have to, they have to countenance it. They have to buy it. They have to accept it uh-huh. because it's true. I'll give you a simple example. You walk into a bookstore, you see lots of books, you have the idle thought, wow, there are a lot of writers out there. That's a true thought, but it's going to stop the typical writer from writing because suddenly all that competition and all those books has uh, brought on a little bit of despair or disappointment or something. So even though there are a lot of writers out there, is a true thought. It's not a thought that serves us. Right. We need to fight off that kind of thought the second we hear it. These aren't innocent thoughts. It's not like they go in one ear and out the other. They sit there and they fester. So what's so I, I hear us kind of merging into this conversation about resistance, which I definitely want to talk about. Um, can you explain to me and to the listeners the difference between um, like being a resistance warrior and and bypassing. So whereas if a thought of a negative thought comes up and I immediately say, oh, let me just make it positive. Like that's also not addressing some, uh, sometimes we're, we're bypassing a, 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 an important moment of discomfort or more, a potent, more, a potent, important moment of, of pain or struggle that might be um, it, trying to tell us something or teach us something. And if we just always are making it positive, that's there. There's a there's an issue there with with like kind of bypassing. Um, but at the same time, I, I totally agree that we don't have to sit in that pain if we don't want to. We don't have to sit in that discomfort if we don't want to. We could make the choice to be positive um, and to be resistance warriors. So can you just speak a little bit about resistance? Well, and- you've named about fifteen important, complicated things that go together. So let, let me try to tease apart some of the ideas. Thank you, yeah. A, we're very tricky creatures. And so we say things to ourselves to stop ourselves from doing things. And we say, and they are typically true sounding things. The, the two things we say most often nowadays, people are saying most often nowadays to make sure they don't get to their real work is I'm tired and I'm busy. And so when people say that, they have to learn to say I'm tired 
but or and however you want to say it i'm tired and i can spend 15 minutes on my novel or i'm busy and i can spend 15 minutes on my symphony can't let those phrases sit there because we are tricky creatures and our goal is to avoid anxiety and the creative process comes with anxiety yep. and the thing human beings do to deal with anxiety is flee the encounter they want to get the hell out of there so they say things to themselves that assure them that they're going to turn on a TV program next rather than turn to their novel. So a lot of this is just truthfulness, essentially, hearing what we're saying to ourselves and understanding how tricky we are and being truthful about the implications of what we're saying. Mm. So that's A. B, there are all kinds of trauma-related historical reasons for not wanting to get to the work. So we avoid the work because we want to avoid the pain or the experience of something. In the PTSD and trauma-related literature, there's a distinction made between remembering something and re-experiencing something. Mm. So one of the goals for a creative who's doing work that brings up stuff is to find this way of remembering it because she needs to remember it but not having to re-experience the trauma or not, so to speak, not having to go there. Right. So that's B, there's gonna be C, D, E, and F and there's a lot of stuff here. Thank you, I'm so excited. <laughs> the C is most people don't understand that they're trying to get from one mind to another mind when they say they want to work on their novel or work on their painting or what have you, a different mind is required. And here's what I mean. All day long, we're supposed to get things right. That's our logical job in life. Drive on the correct side of the road, pick up our kids at three, make sure our insurance is paid up, whatever. A million correct things. And we don't approve it of ourselves if we're not doing correct things. It's not like we're supposed to be irresponsible. But then somehow a moment is supposed to come where we have real permission to make mistakes and messes. That's the creative process. Mm -hmm. And most people don't have a way of getting from one mind to the other mind. They're still in that I need to get things right mind all day long. So they need what I call a ceremonial bridge. They need some way of reminding themselves that now they have full permission, not just intellectual permission. Everybody has intellectual permission to make mistakes. They just hate the idea and they hate it in their body. So they need visceral permission to make mistakes and messes. So they need this ceremonial bridge, which for me is really just a deep breath and a right thought married together, little deep breathing, and then some thought like, I'm completely stopping, which would stand for I'm completely stopping my need to get things right. So there's a lot going on here in this resistance moment. And it's just this kind of split second moment where people are going, maybe, 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 maybe I can get to my work now. If they stay in that maybe place, it's almost always going to go to no. Mm. So they need stronger yeses in life, stronger no's too. If you don't want to do your work on this day for good reasons, you're living some of your other life purposes, then you want a strong no. You just don't want that weak maybe in your life all day long, maybe, 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 maybe. Strong yeses and strong no's. So much more to say, but let me put a period there. That's, that's a bit of cracking through resistance. And on a visceral level, a practical level, I have the coaches I train crack an egg, a raw egg, to have the experience of cracking through resistance. So I have them go to their workspace, bring an egg and a bowl and a spoon, and actually crack an egg for the experience of cracking through resistance. Everybody hates doing that. It's, it's easy to crack an egg if you're baking a cake. 
that's no problem. But cracking an egg for no good reason actually makes most people squeamish. Hmm. They don't like the experience. So this is to, to give them that experience of what the, the anxiety that's, that's going on there. It's not tons of anxiety. It's just enough anxiety to make us want to do something else on that day. So I guess to finish off this point, managing creative anxiety is really important for creative folks. They don't understand the extent to which anxiety manifests itself. And they don't understand it because they've done typically a perfect job of dealing with the anxiety by not doing their work. <laughs> and that's not the way we want to deal with anxiety by not doing our work. We want to face our work and deal with the anxiety that wells up, that bubbles up. It's, it's so spot on. Thank you. It's, um, you know, I think my listeners, the listeners of the show know that I've spoken a little bit about uh, my anxiety and my depression uh, and my pathway through, um, through that. Um, and it is just so reassuring to hear that uh, you are also talking about how our creative practices can actually, we can learn to face that anxiety, that there's actually sometimes a link between our creativity and our anxiety. And that and in some ways our, our create, creative practices, our, our creative practices might actually be the pathway towards kind of healing it and, and, and like a therapy of well, Yeah, I just, you know, you can tell that I'm careful about language. I, I want to not act like there are things to do to make the anxiety go away. It will never go away. Mm. We don't want it to go away because it's part of our warning system against danger. Mm. We want it. We want to still be. We still want to feel anxious about getting into an elevator with those people who look unsavory, kind of thing. We we okay. want our anxiety to work. So the the goal is not to eliminate anxiety. It's to manage it, and it's to be smarter about it. Mm. One of the reasons that anxiety will always thread through the creative process is that, and let me say this a little slowly so your listeners get it. The creative process is making one choice after another. This note versus that note, this melody versus that melody, this versus that, and choosing provokes anxiety. Mm. So if you just think through that sentence, that the creative process will always be, is and will always be choosing and choosing provokes anxiety, there will always be anxiety. So people have to face up to getting to their work while anxious and doing their work while anxious. Wow. Now it can subside, it can go away. Sometimes we go, we're in the trance of working or in flow. There's no anxiety, we're working beautifully. That's a blessing, that's gorgeous. But that's not the rule. The, the rule, the rule is we have to show up and not attach to needing to feel calm or need, not attach to out, not attach to anything, just show up. Tchaikovsky has a line I love, which is, um, I'm inspired about every fifth day, but I only get that fifth day if I show up the other four. <laughs> so we have to just show up even if on that day, nothing exciting happens. Even if it's a super boring, mundane, creative day, we can't badmouth that day. We can't say, oh, I have no talent. Oh, I'm an idiot. Why am I doing this? We have to understand that it's the showing upness that matters and that over time will create a body of work, some of which will be good and some of which won't. We need certain maturity around these issues. People have to realize that X percent of what they do will not be okay. 
will suck. So I just, I'm, I'm pausing just to let that sink in. People want to come to their work with some guarantee right. that the thing they're working on is gonna be good. There is no guarantee available. Mm. How many of Bob Dylan's 5 million songs are great? 30, 14, 28, whatever the number is, it's a percentage of the whole. Every creative person's output, the good stuff is a percentage of the whole. We just watched the uh, Dolly Parton documentary and you know how many of her songs are hits? 5, 10, 15, 20, whatever the number is, she's written 2000 songs. That means that 1990 of them are ordinary. Yep. We have have to live with this ordinariness and the solution is to work. So how do we decide? I'm just, I, I have, I'm so excited to talk with you. I have so many questions. I feel like you're unlocking so much. So, but just this, so this is, might be a personal question. So how do we know what gets released into the world and shared and what doesn't get released into the world and shared? Well, I think we want to err on the side of sharing because most people are, uh, withhold too much. They're a little too scared of the marketplace so that they, they keep their work out of the marketplace. So if, if there's kind of a basic principle, it would be to share rather than not share, comma. But a big comma is you need to grow a thick skin around criticism. Mm. Um, you don't want to be sharing early on or stuff that you know isn't uh, strong if the criticism you receive and you will receive it will harm you. So the, the showing question is connected to the how you take in criticism question, how well you deal with criticism. Mm. Most people need a much thicker skin around criticism. Mm. Um, I've been toiling in these fields for 50 years. I haven't replied to a piece of criticism in 50 years yet. Wow. I do not care what people are saying because everybody has an opinion. Yeah. And that, that sounds like it, that is a cliche and it sounds that's something that goes in one ear and out the other. But everybody has an opinion yeah for sure and that's their right to have it that's their that's right and when you're dealing with marketplace players that's where creatives get a little really batty because they take the opinions of marketplace players much more seriously than they ought to because marketplace players typically a don't know that much they know what they know but not necessarily that much b the landscape keeps changing c they make Decisions like this, I don't, I don't know if my snap fingers can be heard, yes, but they, they make decisions in the snap of a finger. They don't give a lot of things. They give no thought. They just go yes, no. Right. And now the writer is going to change her whole book because some editor idly said, you know, I think the, I think the middle sags. Right. You have to be really careful there about taking. I'll give you a concrete example Please. of the reality of not taking opinion seriously. I wanted to, I, I did do a book called Life Purpose Bootcamp and I wanted to do a book with that title. I wanted that exact title because I wanted to say certain things about actual bootcamp. I was in the army and blah, blah, blah. I wanted to use the bootcamp metaphor. So I showed the project to uh, my literary agent number one, Jan, Janet's her name. And she said, Eric, this is so boring. Everything is a boot camp. There's like nail polish boot camp and, and comb your hair boot camp and everything's a boot camp. This is such a cliche. Can't you do better? Now, unfortunately, most creatives take that in and will react and say, oh, oops, I chose the wrong title. I don't even hear that. 
all I do is go on to the next literary agent. So I went on to literary agent Jeff, my other lit literary agent, said, Jeff, what do you think about Life Purpose Bootcamp? And he said, great use of a contemporary metaphor, can't wait to represent it. And he sold the book in two days. That's a real life representation of the thing that people have to get behind, which is you have to stand behind your own opinions. This isn't narcissism or grandiosity or any word like that. This is just, you'll, you'll be battered all over the place. You'll be a leaf in the wind. If every time some reader or some listener or some somebody says something to you and you take that seriously. Mm. Yes, there are bits of things to take seriously from the world, of course. And I, I can't really you know, make the, the whole balance statement here of how much to take in and how much not to take in. But the headline is stand behind your own opinions of things. I, I was listening yesterday to Jim Carrey speaking at a commencement speech. Uh, you know, he was giving a commencement speech and he said the line, I don't, I wanna make sure I get it right, but he said something to the, to the students along the lines of, your need for acceptance is making you invisible. Yep. Yep. And I'm going to go way back in time, way back in time, to when I was four or five or six. So I was born in 1947. So I'm just right after the post-war baby in New York, where uh, World War II, the Holocaust, and all of that was everywhere. You know, the, the, the guy, the, the couple at the luncheonette had their uh, tattoos from the camps and, you know, made the best brisket, but they had their tattoos from the camps. And so I grew up with the, with the idea of and the phrase resistance fighter very strongly in my being. And for whatever reason, that's how I would conceptualize my life, not as a creative person or what have you, but as a resistance fighter. And I think that's a similar idea. That is, we have to be a battalion of one in life, stand up for the right principles, stand up for our own work, stand up. And not take in much of what the world has to say because much of what the world has to say is humbug. Hmm. Can you speak a little bit about um, your family lineage? You, you said your, your family were resistance fighters. Uh, what is well, that? Well, no. No, no, I, I, not that my family were resistance fighters, rather that that, was, that, that phrase was in the ethos. It uh -huh. was something that uh, I grew up feeling as a phrase. I did not know, well, like my good friend's father fought in the Lincoln Brigade, which was this almost all New York, all Jewish gr group of soldiers who fought against Franco in the Spanish Civil War before World War II started. Mm. So it was, it was a folk singing leftist, universe, labor, all those things. That was the universe. And very early on, I was reading the French existentialist as a kid. I was probably seven or eight or nine reading Sartre and Camus and those folks. And especially Camus around the slowness of French intellectuals to appreciate Hitler's threat. So I was, I was immersed in the logic of World War II, the logic of fascism, I'm still writing about authoritarians and Trump and, and religious folks and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. For me, I'm still doing whole books on that subject because we have not deconstructed the authoritarian personality well enough yet. 
The authoritarian personality is a phrase that arose in the 1950s from the work of a fellow named Adorno and other social psychologists at UC Berkeley. And they tried to identify not so much who Hitler was, but who Hitler's followers were. Mm. They made a distinction between authoritarian leaders and authoritarian followers. So we're off, we're off in the weeds right now, I know, in what we're talking about. Oh, it's but, this is, but, but this is really sort of my, my background dash backbone, sort of where I've been all of this time is still trying to understand things that don't make sense. I've always been that kid sort of pointing out that the emperor has no clothes. One of those areas for me is the area of psychiatry. I write in what's called critical psychiatry or anti-psychiatry because virtually all of psychiatry makes no sense. That's a whole nother subject for another conversation. But that's just about me trying to point out what's not making sense to me and trying to articulate what does make sense to me. And so that's been my energy. It's not about having an idea. The creative process for me is not coming up with an idea. It's about this lifelong um, resistance to stuff that doesn't make sense to me. Resist your resistance to things that don't make sense. And so you're, as opposed to you facing resistance, you're saying that you've had resistance against things that don't make sense and, you, and you're actually entering into that process of resistance. That, that, that's, yeah, that's, that's part of the creative it's process. Like, it's like Camus during World War II keeping the periodical combat afloat, the underground periodical combat afloat while Paris was occupied. It's that kind of resistance. It's doing something in the face of it, not just internally resisting, saying, oh, you bad fascists. It's actually doing something in the face of what's going on. Mm. One of the great models for me of this is the Russian composer Shostakovich writing great symphonies while his city, Stalingrad is, 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 be, is under siege from the Nazis. And not just writing the symphonies, but having these starving citizens of Stalingrad perform the symphonies wow. to keep their spirits up. And by the way, parenthetically, it would not surprise you that he was one of the few human beings who ever spoke up to Stalin in his face, got in Stalin's face. Wow. You don't get in Stalin's face. <laughs> so, these same people resist in all kinds of ways. They resist by making music during the siege and they resist by saying things right and speaking truth to power. Stepping into the resistance, leaning into it, it sounds like that is the creative process in some ways. It's not always this receiving of beauty and receiving of peace and receiving of you know this fluid creative spirit which is what i love to talk about and experience <laughs> but what you're what, what you're saying is that like let's you know we can also pursue the resistance yes. we can pursue the conflict we can we can lean into the discomfort so to speak because that's yeah. where a lot of that creativity is yeah and one of the ways that we manage anxiety is by, is by learning how to do something and then repeating ourselves. So a lot of artists get stale by virtue of, let's use a crazy example. Let's say you're a great artichoke painter. So you know how to make artichokes and your artichokes sell because everybody needs an artichoke. <laughs> but you know, if you want to paint a banana, you're stuck because that anxiety is gonna well up the second you think about painting a banana because you'd have to be a beginner there again. You'd have to make some bad bananas. And the, the, the experienced fluent artichoke painter is not gonna to wanna to make bad bananas. 
So an awful lot of creative folks get stuck repeating themselves so as to not experience the anxiety they would experience if they broke new ground. Uh. It's a big problem for creatives. They, they don't know that this phenomenon is going on. Uh. And, and it's hard for them to identify the phenomenon because their, their managers, their fans, their everybody's want the stuff repeated. Want they the want to hear their hits. They right. want the, their top 10, top 10 Eagle. They want the Hotel California again. So the artist himself or herself has to notice this. Gosh, am I using this chord progression yet again or, or, or whatever it is? No, I, I'm, I'm gonna take a chance. My audience gonna, this is, this is Bob Dylan going electric. This is my audience may hate me, but I've gotta go where I've gotta go. Yeah, and that's why we fall in love with them because they're the risk takers. They're the ones who are bold enough to go there. Or, but I don't want to put a smiley face on this, or the risk doesn't pan out and our audience hates us and we fade away. I, I, don't, I, don't want, I don't want to act like anything comes with a guarantee, like, oh, we do the next great thing in our career and it works and we get applause. I, I want to be completely real about this. These are real risks. Mm -hmm. I'll give you an example of, of the riskiness of this. Uh, Arthur Conan Doyle wrote Sherlock Holmes, of course, but he wrote lots of interesting novels that no one would read because they only read Sherlock Holmes. So Arthur Conan Doyle was so pissed off that he, you may remember, kills Sherlock Holmes. He has Moriarty push him off a cliff. Hmm. His fans were so outraged, he got so much pushback from that, that in, in the next episode, he had to have Sherlock Holmes miraculously appear again from, <laughs> from cliffside. <laughs> He could not tolerate the pushback from his audience in killing Sherlock Holmes. This is the reality of fandom and celebrity and all that stuff is you're, you're supposed to do a certain sort of thing. And it's, you're, up against, you're up against it if you try to do something else. And, and would your recommendation have been to him, stay the course, follow your intuition, don't listen to the criticism, just keep keep going. No, no, no I, 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 I treat people's safety needs and decisions as, as kind of sacrosanct. I, I, I'll give you an example. The short answer is no, I would not always opt for risk because safety matters too. People have to decide this for themselves. Mm. If you have a family of well, mouths to feed, I'm not going to say kill Sherlock Holmes off if Sherlock Holmes is feeding your family. No, I'm, I'm not inclined to want to say that. Uh, I had a client, a well-known sculptor in her 80s at that point, who was offered a show at a museum, a one-person show of new stuff. And she wanted to do an, a big anti-war thing, big anti, I don't know if it was Iraq or Afghanistan, I'm not, I don't remember what war, but it was a big anti-war collection of sculptures but she was scared the reaction would have, she lived in the South, she was scared the reaction that the show would have where she lived, but especially from her husband. Mm. And it, it took us a while to just be with this dilemma. She wanted to do the show, but she wanted to feel safe and she opted to do a very pleasant show as opposed to the anti-war show. She came down on the side of safety. Human beings have to decide these things for themselves. Mm. Mm. So there's a lot of compassion in that. 
that, you know, there's, I think there's other people in your position who might just stay, follow the course. Creativity is leading you in a direction. You have to follow the, the creativity, but it sounds like there's, nope. you're, there's probably, there's a lot of wisdom behind what you're saying that you've seen a lot of people go through this process. Yeah. And also let me say in this context, I'm trying to sell the paradigm shift from the purpose of life to the idea of life purposes, multiple life purposes. There's mm -hmm. no purpose to life. They're only the life purposes we choose. And so creativity is just one life purpose. There's also service and activism and career and relationships and XYZ. Mm -hmm. Lots of things are important to us. So for her, uh, her relationship was important to her. Creativity was important to her, right. but not more important than uh, her relationship or her or her community standing or other things yeah. that were important There's to her. multiple things that are important to us. And it's not all about creativity or career. I, I love that. It's not all about creativity and career. It is not. I love that. Thank you. Thank you for giving us permission to rip and, and reminding ourselves that we are dynamic and we are balanced and we are um, multifaceted. Um, I, yeah, I'm so appreciative. Um, yeah. So I had a list of a bunch of questions to ask you. I've asked absolutely none of them, but it doesn't matter because this conversation has been um, so extraordinary and I am so, so grateful for your time, for you, uh, for your openness to, to, to discuss this um, topic with us and uh, just to, to be here and share your wisdom with us. So thank you so much for being here. Uh, thank you uh, for all that you've contributed to the, 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 you know, the, the many, many bodies of work that you have and, uh, and, and all that you've contributed to this field. Well, thanks for having me. We should have like a parting song or something, but- uh, Absolutely, you we'll, want to do a parting- we'll, No, 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 we'll skip it. Oh, it's been so good. Hey, that's how it's going to end then. That's where we're at. Amen. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Wonderful. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so, so much, Eric. It's been such a joy and pleasure speaking with you today. Uh, and uh, just reminding our listeners, we're speaking with Eric Maisel, who has over 50 books. Uh, and you can find um, him at ericmaisel.com, uh, where you can find so many resources um, and, uh, and access to his books and his teachings and, uh, and where he's going to be next. And uh, so just doing really, really wonderful work. So thank you again for spending the time with us today. Thank you. That's our show for today. Thank you once again to Eric for joining us on the show and sharing his insights into the creative process. I hope you've been enjoying this series. We're continuing to grow and expand this podcast and are always looking for new ways for this experience to serve you better. If you have ideas for how else you'd like this series to serve you and your creativity, I'd love to hear about it. Follow us on B Major Co. on Instagram and Facebook and drop us a note giving us some of your feedback. You can also visit our B Major website, bmajor.co, where you can find all of our episodes as well as detailed information on all of our guests and upcoming programs. I'm always adding new videos to my YouTube channel, so if you're wanting to watch the Revoice Method in action, make sure you're subscribed to my Noah Aronson channel on YouTube. 
I'm hard at work on a new album that I hope to be releasing before the end of 2021. Sign up for our newsletter so you can stay up to date on new releases and to see if I'll be performing in your area anytime soon. We'll be back next week with another episode and interview reminding you that you are creative, we all are creative, and that the world needs your voice now more than ever. You can be bolder, you can be stronger, be happier, and of course, you can be major. See you next week. Oh,